Voice of the Cape. The, voice of the, Cape. the Leadership Hour. with um, the leadership hour um, this between 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock and between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock we're going to continue with the legal hour so um, with, uh, and we're going to have Faisal Bardin on it and for those people that want to prepare themselves we're going to be discussing family disputes and um, in connection with wills, inheritances and properties and everything to do with family disputes. So those people that want to listen in on that, between 8 and 9, we'll deal with that. But for now, we're you know, de- dealing with the leadership hour, and I've got a very special guest here with me tonight. Um, we've had politicians here, we've had people in the uh, in the academia, we've had people in business, and um, tonight I think we're going to change a little bit, you know, people with, uh, with um, serious skills. I mean, I, I always say, I mean, politicians, get angry at me when they say when I tell them they get paid to talk but uh, we've got people in in house tonight I mean not people we've got one lady her name is uh, Dr. Shazia Peer she is a pediatric ENT surgeon Assalamu alaikum Shazia Wa alaikum salam and um, yeah, she looks very nervous behind the mic, but uh, yeah, I wanted to relax. I mean, uh, people, are, the listeners of The Voice of the Cape are actually very friendly. They listen well. They ask a lot of questions and they're very, very intrigued by people that give up their time to actually speak to the community. So thank you for that. So who is Dr. Shazia Peer? Now, firstly, Shazia, you are not originally from Cape Town. Where yeah. did you grow up? I grew up on the East Coast. On the East Coast. Yeah. Oh, where is the East Coast? <laughs> <laughs> so I was born in Durban and I uh, uh, went to high school there and then studied in Johannesburg at Wits. And um, I then came to Cape Town to specialize in uh, ear, nose and throat surgery. So ENT is ear, nose and throat surgery. I mean, it sounds very, very complicated. It is a, but it is a but the, the, the word before that is pediatric, so I'm assuming that you're dealing with children. Yes, yes. So, so ear, nose and throat surgery has um, quite a broad base and there are a few uh, disciplines within that, specialties within that. So I am an ear, nose and throat surgeon, but I further subspecialized in pediatrics. So the thing is when, um, when, when I looked at the different type of people, you know, doctors and lawyers and whatever, in fact, I don't like even... Um, interviewing lawyers on air because we get so many of them on air and um, I thought you know like this is quite a specialized field that you are in and you have done quite a bit of, of, of things you know like you know uh, amazing things in the in your industry like in terms of um, but you need to tell us a little bit about you know the the things that you've done that they don't do in the rest of the world or things that um, you know that they that, and because I know you also go lecture all over the world or you go assist people all over the world uh, you need to tell us a little bit about that you know how your, your pioneering uh, endeavors <laughs> so where do you want to start you want to start with um, why you chose Cape Town maybe as a as a place to or, or I think you had Red Cross eh? yeah, you had yeah. Red Cross so why Red Cross and why Cape Town 
Well, perhaps I can start it uh, just a little bit before that, why ENT and why ENT. Okay, well, that may be a good place, yeah. That may be a good place because a lot of people have heard heard about ENT and and what ENT surgeons do. And uh, to some extent, we actually have such a wonderful specialty because we're invested in the senses, what people can hear and how they uh, produce sound in order to speak and and communicate. And uh, those are things that actually improve the quality of someone's life to some degree, if that's impaired, it can affect it can affect the quality of life. So I've always known I wanted to be a surgeon from the time I was at medical school and uh, followed through with that. And um, to be honest, uh, the University of Cape Town, in my opinion, and uh, the Khrudeskir um, Institute, together with Red Cross Hospital, was for me um, a place that I chose to specialize in and to do surgery under Professor Johan Fagen and, and the other team members. Professor Johan Fagen He's quite a famous surgeon. He is, yes. yes. So you worked uh, with I him? I worked under him, yeah. And and I came across to do my registrar training um, back in the day under him. And I really was still very fascinated with the human body and the wonder that uh, the anatomy actually can show to us. And so the head and neck most certainly can provide that. It, it really is quite remarkable uh, just uh, how um, wonderful wonderful surgery is and, and, and even the field that we are in. So now you've mentioned Groot Skier but you're also at, at so how does the two yeah. link up? So we fall under um, one um, unit um, and, and this is under the University of Cape Town in the Department of ENT Surgery and we basically have three hospitals attached to that um, uh, and it is the New Somerset Hospital, Khrutiskir Hospital and Red Cross. And so even though I'm based at Red Cross, we fall in, in the larger umbrella of uh, all these uh, hospitals. And how big is your team? So um, we're in the state sector, not that big. We've got um, six uh, specialists, six consultants that uh, are responsible for the state sector in our drainage area. And um, it, it can be quite challenging. At Red Cross, alone they're just two of us oh my goodness two yeah. doctors for how many people <laughs> well we see uh, sometimes 30 to 40 kids a day a day yeah and and you know resources are always restricted and and uh, we struggle we struggle with our burdens of disease okay now the uh, i mean i've obviously a lot of these things are very specialized so of course uh, you know i, I need to start <laughs> I mean, it's sure, easy for me to for ask a politician a question. <laughs> but I mean, when I deal with, with a doctor, yeah. then I need to ask a very specialized question. And of course, we need to make people understand what it is. Yes. So what what would you... I mean, you're a pediatric airway specialist. That's what I saw on that card. And, yes. uh, now, what does that actually yeah. mean? <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know what happens when you Because if somebody thing. tells me that an airway special, I thought it may be a pilot or something, <laughs> but I mean, uh, so, so explain that to us. Yeah, that, that can be, that can be mis- and, you know, misconstrued for many things. So, you know, within ENT, there's the ear, the nose, and the throat, and the throat is the gateway or the entrance into the uh, lungs, really. And so when we talk about an airway, it's from the lips or the oral cavity, the mouth, and it goes all the way down to where the windpipe or the trachea enters into the lungs. And so uh, an upper airway pathology is anything that happens or goes wrong as it relates to breathing. So I um, am responsible for pediatric 
airway problems that relate to breathing difficulties. So if a child can't breathe, yes. somebody rushes them to to, to, to um hospital. To the hospital. Yeah. So are you on call like all the time or how does it work? I mean so if you look at two doctors for in the middle of the night somebody comes in my child go and breathe what do you do so the type the type of breathing problems that we specifically look at are the upper airway obstruction problems so say if somebody um, were to uh, choke on on uh, a peanut KFC. or KFC or something and if it if for example it were to get stuck in the upper airways or if they were whistling for example and a piece of that whistle went into oh. their airway and got oh. stuck between their vocal cords that would be an absolute emergency and that would be something that they would have to bring the child in for for us to relieve the obstruction and that happens even in the adults if so, there's an obstruction but i'm still not understanding how two people can deal with <laughs> all these things so I explain know. that to us so so we run a service uh, in the state sector and we are a, a tertiary hospital that um, is uh, receiving consults but thankfully there are other ent surgeons that are uh, in the um, in the other hospitals that uh, are able to facilitate this practice in, in other centers. But if it is a complex airway, if it's a problem where somebody has a complex disease and then also has an airway problem, they would come straight to us. There's some very specialized airway problems, like, uh, for example, if I may say so, um, there are children who have um, bilateral vocal cord palsy. That's when the vocal cords don't move. Mm -hmm. And it could either be the way they were born it could be due to an injury. Um, it could even be uh, due to surgery uh, where the vocal cords don't move. And so they don't move outwards to let air in when one breathes. And that can be a, a problem. It can cause respiratory distress. And they would then need to come to us. So even though we manage airway obstruction, we manage the usual things like uh, big tonsils when someone sleeps, it can give them sleep disordered breathing mm. and they can get sleep obstructive symptoms. We manage that, we take their tonsils out. Um, but we also manage the more complex kids, the kids who have problems with their um, anatomy. So if they have a small jaw, for example, if they have an immature epiglottis, things like that we would, we would manage. So the more specialized, difficult uh, to treat cases we would see. Shazza, I want to move before we, I mean, we're going to take a break shortly, but before we take the break, I, I forgot to ask you this. You, you come from an activist family. <laughs> yes. And I, and I do believe oh that you, you, no, you need to tell all the listeners, <laughs> uh, your mother has been quite, uh, she's, she's been the mayor of Durban. The, uh, well, I, I don't know so how it works. I know something like that you know, from my, what I read. Hmm. Yeah, my my mother is the um, she is the, the current deputy mayor of Durban. Okay. Uh, but I suppose she's been uh, a voice uh, and uh, uh, she's been a voice for many many people in in Durban. Is, is she and, and also a doctor by profession? No, so she, my mother is not. She's um, actually um, a, a lawyer, a labour lawyer, and um, she was in politics for as long as I can remember. Okay. And she comes from a history of it through her family roots and um, I suppose we've grown up around it. <laughs> <laughs> and you, your activist always had a, We've always had um, something that we could, uh, you know, stand up for. And mm -hmm. I think in our household there was always the need to uh, step up 
and to um, advocate. And I think for me, um, my level of advocacy correlates quite well with what I do. Um, and I see my job in many ways as a social responsibility to the patients that I treat. So I see it as um, an advocacy for, for them. So children who, for example, in the literal sense cannot speak. They're voiceless because they've got issues with their voice and, and to actually phonate or to breathe. That is my level of advocacy. I speak for the voiceless. And in the same way, I have... Uh, That's really a, a literal way of doing it. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sometimes we give them voice with some surgical intervention. We're able to give them voice. Um, <laughs> and also for my trainees, I, I feel very fortunate that there are people who are training in my care and who are learning to be good uh, surgeons, good doctors and good individuals. Oh, so you do training as well? Yeah, we train registrars that are in our training program and we train South African trainees who are registrars. We also train African trainees and we have fellowships within our uh, department. Tell us a little bit about your, your overseas ventures in terms of going to do work in, in overseas hospitals. I uh, So they... Um, my overseas exposure has been one of a more personal one. I um, really enjoyed my training at Red Cross when I was a registrar. And so I felt the need to uh, further develop my skill set and to become a pediatric ENT specialist, which is where we are today. Mm. And as you rightfully said, it's a niche practice. Mm. And even though it is, even as you said, a critical need because it's an airway obstruction, it's often not prioritized in training centers. And so there was no training unit here where we could learn subspecialties. And it is one of the challenges that we face in medical training. There aren't many subspecialist programs for many surgical specialties. And so for the greater part of uh, the specialists, they would actually learn in, in their own way. They would um, self-learn or go overseas and observe. I was very fortunate and I had the support of my team, my um, uh, department, where I was able to go to Toronto in Canada to a hospital called Sick Kids, And I was able to learn the skill set that I'm now able to um, perform and so were, were you were you going as a were you seconded or was it you? I applied for a fellowship and then through a process of eligibility I managed to get in and I uh, trained for two years and I obviously had to fulfill the criteria so I was an ENT specialist and um, I I then studied further and practically learned all of my skills so so what did you bring back from Canada that was not available here so I was able to start um, start up a multidisciplinary team that is this pediatric airway unit that we have now. And it's actually quite remarkable because I think the time came where even within the structures of pediatric subspecialties, people were looking towards a pediatric ENT. So together, me and pulmonologist, pediatric pulmonologist and pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon with uh, Sister Jane Booth. She's our tracheostomy sister. She's marvelous. She runs the Breathe Easy program. We all basically came together and um, on one platform address the needs of children with airway obstruction and airway problems. And what we in the past would do would be to bypass the obstruction and make a hole in the neck and do a tracheostomy. Uh, but in a sense, there was no urgency to repair the pathology, to repair the obstruction. What we are able to do now is repair the obstruction and either remove the tracheostomy or avert the need completely for a tracheostomy. 
And government's involvement in this, are they providing enough funding for this type of... Uh... It is, you know, with many, many niche practices, it is quite a problem. When we've, we faced with um, struggles in equipment, in um, training, and also in just acquiring certain um, tools. Uh, but so are they even a, aware a that there's, no, no, there's the challenge, but are they aware there's challenges? And what's the, what is the, the, the mechanism that this type of information gets to the decision makers or are they even aware of it and this is the type of platform that we need this is exactly it this is absolutely where we need to um, speak about these things because in as much as this is a niche practice it is a it is a critical one and so my big challenge and this is something i face because i work with children and i work with children who don't have access to um uh, to uh, financial um uh, resources, uh, resources mm -hmm. is that they actually have no way to get to us and so they are first of all socioeconomically um uh, struggling they also don't have access to physically get to us so they would get referred to a community health center who, where they're seen and that person may not have an idea of what what the pathology is enough to get to us. And for example, the bilateral vocal cord palsy that I was talking to you about could be misdiagnosed as asthma for many, many years before mm. somebody sort of realizes that, hang on, this could be something more because they're refractory to, to medication. They're not getting better. Mm. So, so even just awareness of the conditions that we treat are not known. And um, what has made a difference is one advocacy, like speaking on platforms like this, but getting the word out through patient care. And we're lucky with the Red Cross is that they've got the Children's Trust and the Friends of the Children's Trust like to um, uh, ask us about the cases that we do and who are the patients who've had a life-changing uh, event based on our care or based on something we've done and like I mentioned to you earlier we had this wonderful young girl who's 10 years old and who was born with bilateral vocal cord palsy and was um, basically living with a tracheostomy since two weeks of age and with um, the coming to our hospital and uh, having an open airway procedure just this week past we were able to remove the tracheostomy and have her integrate into society and become a productive member but at the same time live have a childhood and uh, continue with developing like everybody else. Now I want to understand what would a private practitioner, what would they have charged for some <laughs> way procedure like that? Because I want people to understand yeah. that these things are quite expensive. I mean it's highly specialized. So just from a perspective of if, if it was in private practice, what would somebody have charged for something like that? And can I'm I, sorry if I'm putting you on the spot now. Can I tell you something that nobody in private practice has even done this surgery? And mm -hmm. I would say not even in the country. Wow. Uh, we're, you know, we're doing them. And we're doing them because of the training that I was fortunate enough to have. But also we have the population that is coming to us. Um, so if, you know, it, it, it is about not just the surgical time, the operative time, the um, uh, the the patient staying in the hospital, but it's also the um, support structure. So having the nurses who know how to manage this, having, for example, the uh, intensivist in the ICU knowing how to manage this, 
the anesthetist while we are in the surgery knowing how to um, manage the patient, knowing what um, stents to use within the airway, uh, how to feed someone after the surgery, uh, even with uh, the dietitian, the speech that is, how do you speak after all of this? So it is, it, it is a whole system and it's the support of many people who contribute actively or passively that make this work. I think it's important that people understand that because, I mean, there's a whole lot of professionals involved, yeah. a whole lot of resources gets put into this type of operations. I mean, it's, it's, it's also good to know that the community, a lot of the people listening to this program right now, they are active contributors to Red Cross. We've always had... Isn't that wonderful? Thank yeah. you. No, no, I, I, I think of one specific lady, um, Auntie Warda Jacobs. Um, her husband, her late husband, used to also be a presenter on, on Voice of the Cape. Yeah. Auntie Warda and friends and family have an annual event and all the proceeds of this high tea, whatever it is, it gets uh, donated to Red Cross. Wow. So, I mean, that's just one example. Mm. And, I mean, there's many others. So, I mean, it's good also for people to understand that people that do pioneering work, like yourself and leaders, um, that, you know, there's a lot of people out there punting for the type of work you do. But at the same time, we need to, to, to understand what type of sure, work people do. Sure. You know, that, that, that places yeah. like Red Cross. I mean, you know, we had um, such a wonderful story. We have so many wonderful stories of patients who otherwise wouldn't have known that we have this care available if they didn't seek out help. And um, one of the children that we helped a few years ago, um, he was born with a very narrow trachea and the trachea is the windpipe and um, you know if if you're born with a very narrow trachea you can't get get any oxygen in and you can't get any any air out and so he struggled for a very very long time before his dad heard one of my uh, pro talk shows on radius on Urgenso, one of the other things and uh, said hang on there's someone who knows how to fix our child and came across us and actually came to Cape Town and we were able to help him and we so widened. How did, you, how did you manage the Afrikaans? Uh, I didn't. <laughs> I took the Afrikaans questions and answered okay. in English. I'm embarrassed okay. to say, but I, uh, you know, we're, we're not quite I didn't grow up uh, in Cape Town, but uh, no, we no, were able no, to help him. Let me just say, in, in Cape Town people are not Tuatalik either. <laughs> we speak a very, very good dialect of Mingles. <laughs> English mixed with Afrikaans. And uh, that's why we don't all. call it Afrikaans, we call it Mingles. Mingles. Yes. I'm probably even worse at that. <laughs> and uh, and the funny thing, okay, I'm, I'm deviating a little bit now, just speaking mm -hmm. about language. Yes. That... The Cape Malay people were the first people to speak Afrikaans. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, it was borrowed by the Dutch, and of course, we got Afrikaans today. But the Cape Malay people were actually the original speakers of Afrikaans. And the first book was even written yeah. by Abu Bakr yeah. Effendi. So, so don't feel bad about it. You, you can learn Mingles, and we will happily incorporate you into that. Uh, <laughs> into that <laughs> I, will take, I will take that gracefully. <laughs> yeah, but coming back to you, now talk to me more a little bit about the, the challenges. I know that there's a lot of challenges for people like yourself who are serving the community on, 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 on the, the level that you are. I mean, isn't it sometimes you know, tempting to say, you know what, I'm going to go into private practice? I mean, has that ever crossed your mind? Well, I do. I'm fortunate in a sense that I do a, a, a bit of limited private practice because I provide the same service to the private sector 
for children with airway problems who otherwise wouldn't have this available to them. But to, to tell you the truth, I think within the state practice and most certainly in academic centers, we, we face a lot of red tape and a lot of bureaucracy in trying to acquire things that we need. Um, it, it is quite helpful to um, explain to the powers that be what the need is. And I think more than ever, we need to know our hospital administration and get to know the people even beyond that at the, uh, the at the provincial level and eventually tell them what our burden of disease is. For example, the um, burden of disease for hearing loss is huge. And um, if I can just tell you a little bit about the facts, there are five 5% of the world actually is um, suffering with hearing loss and it's something like 400 million people. Sure. And what is really very, very sad is that an overwhelming majority of these people are in the developing world and that means that's us, that's sub-Saharan Africa and we particularly are facing this when we uh, see patients in our clinics. And what's even more sad is that the reasons for the hearing loss, the etiology, the cause of it is something that's preventable. And this is really quite sad. So for many people working in the community, community health workers, if you work in clinics, if somebody does have um, a leaky ear or an infection within the ear, it is important to see that that is addressed or a long-standing neglected infection can lead to hearing loss. So things that are so simple to treat can effectively reduce this risk of hearing loss. Kesha, as I see, you're becoming quite popular here with all the questions coming okay. through, and uh, which is a very good thing. Somebody sent a message now. I must ask you about the gold medal you got for surgery. What? Is it even such oh a thing? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sure, that is, um, I think, you know, many people excel at exams and, and get medals. I, I did get one a long, long, long time ago when I was in my uh, training uh, mm. through the college. But, uh, you know, it's, um, I was very, very happy But what about was it, it for? I mean... Um, ach, it was just a, a long while ago when I did my surgical exams. Um, and uh, I think one scores the highest in um, in the. Oh, it's like the, uh, one of those. Okay. Yeah. So well, at least you, you have some fans here. On, I know that is a very long that's, time that's ago. To Voice of the Cape, which is which is brilliant. And um, well done for bringing that up. <laughs> and the um, yeah, it's actually somebody that's quite well known to to the Voice of the Cape. Uh, somebody that is really involved with with the community. Well, that's good to know. I still I still try my absolute best at uh, maintaining a high level of uh, a high standard of care for all of my patients. And one of the things that you've mentioned is that we do travel over overseas for two reasons. One is to get the message out there that our patients matter, mm -hmm. to get African statistics, African epidemiological um, uh, markers out there to show that African children and African people who are affected by ear, nose and throat disorders matter and that they take a stage globally. So that's one reason. And the second reason is to get the international um, uh, perception of what uh, surgical treatment is out there to help our children and how we can modify it or utilize it to our structures. Shazam, I ask you something. Um, I think a lot of people are going to want to listen to this. You know, smoking, the whole concept of smoking, you know, like people allow children now to do vaping, you know, because it's, uh, in. it's in. And then, of course, they allow children to do um, pipe, which is like because it's got a little bit of Arabic writing on the packet, then they think it's halal. 
Um, and I've been speaking about this for many years, you know, but of course as, a, as, a, as an activist. But I want the medical view on this <laughs> one. So the point is, is this old concept of smoking harmful to your to your being, to your body. I mean, you can you can you comment on that? Because I mean, and, and then we'll derive questions from there. That is a very loaded question. I know it's loaded, <laughs> but the whole smoking thing, you know, surely it must affect your throat. I mean, surely you know, this you know, there's there's um, primary smoking and secondary smoking. We call it active and passive. Mm-hmm. And so, if I can explain it, someone who smokes inhales the smoke and exhales the smoke. That's your active smoking. That has a direct effect on your airway. It has a direct In effect words, on the active smoking. The, yes, okay, the puffing on on the lining of the um, of of the airway. So there are little hairs that line the airway that impairs uh, significantly with smoking, and that decreases the clearance of uh, of particles, and so um, it, it can actually uh, create uh, problems within the respiratory system for smokers, and. Um, the secondary or the passive smoking has long-term implications and what we have seen uh, and this is something that uh, we are seeing more and more in the papers that are published now is that children of uh, caregivers who smoke are more likely to get upper respiratory tract infections to get ear infections and um, you know this can affect their um, developmental milestones during this period and so um, my personal opinion and my professional opinion is that smoking is not it's not advisable there's also the risk with um smoking associated to head and neck cancers and uh, we see that we see that quite often and we see it in patients who've smoked for many 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 years and so it has an effect on um, the lungs on the airways as well as on the soft tissues in the oral, the oropharyngeal cavity, as well as in the in the larynx. So your medical opinion, as a highly qualified uh, <laughs> doctor, you're saying it's not good for you. It's, uh, it's not good for you, but you know it. It is up to the individual when it comes to active smoking. Most certainly, if it's passive smoking, I advise all of my parents and caregivers not to smoke around children, because that is not their choice. What we do for ourselves is different for what we impart on others, and it is about responsibility. Shaza, I find it interesting that you, you're so blasé about Ach, if you want to smoke, that's your problem. But isn't it your problem as a doctor? When somebody comes to you and says, listen, I've got uh, something in my throat is not it's not giving. So, we would adv- so if I was seeing a person who I felt... Um, who I knew was smoking as a patient, I would advise them to not smoke. I think it's harmful for one. But in the arena where we're talking about is it harmful to smoke or not, yes, the frank answer is smoking is not healthy for anybody. Well, that's a good yeah. answer. And I think um, and maybe that's what we've advocated all the years, mm-hmm. you know, that um, that people should not be encouraging people to do uh, this oka pipes. I mean, I've seen five-year-olds, you know, taking a puff on the oka pipe and everybody thinking it's okay. I think that is not a good idea. I mm. think um, I, I think it is, you know, it's, it's also the beginning of perhaps uh, initiating some kind of uh, habitual format mm. uh, to promote smoking in, in, the, um, in the social sense. And then, of course, there's the, this new thing, the vaping, you know, the, and everybody says, no, it's okay, it's, uh, you know, it's just, but surely there must be something in there, this nicotine in there. Is there a relationship between nicotine and... Um, 
You know, I think this the vi- the, the vaping on its own. It's even though it's been around for a while, there will be a lot of literature that's currently being published about it, and I think any form of um, uh, nicotine. Uh, use can be addictive and so that on its own is not a good idea. Uh, many people use the vape to reduce their um, smoking addiction and to hopefully stop altogether. I think that is uh, one of the, um, well that is most certainly the rationale in some ways but I, I agree it's also not healthy and there will be potentially in future the literature that may come out showing that it in itself is harmful and some of it has already been released okay and then the other question is taha I'm not yeah, I think. So, I mean, that's also to, yeah. a smoking that yeah. could potentially be. But I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I should put that <laughs> into the same category like smoking because it's smoking. Yes. So for it. me, if I have to take home the take home message with regards to smoking, is passive smoking is not good. So uh, spouses who smoke in front of their partners, um, in front of their children, in in community environments where the smoke has an effect on the others is harmful and is not good. Okay. Now. I want to ask you now, young people, young ladies listening to this uh, program, and and there's a lot of young people listening to it, um, they want to become an ENT surgeon, (laughs) and I mean, what is the, um, what must they do? Where do they go? Where do they start? Firstly, you must have a passion for helping people. Uh, You must see the humanity in medicine, because um, you face it every day. Sometimes you do everything right and you still don't get the outcome you want. So you must be there because you love you love um, what you do and uh, you want to help people. Um, I think if somebody is interested in doing ENT surgery, they must have a feel for surgery and for um, uh, working with their hands. It's it's a wonderful feeling. So it's not just about, oh, I've, I've got the title, you know, the thing that's in, no, in front I mean, of my name. Yeah, I think, you know... Um, Malcolm Gladwell said you must do your 10,000 hours to be good at something. Um, you Blink. must, yeah, you, you <laughs> must actually love what you do. And, you know, I always go back to this one phrase. I love it. I love, I love every word of it. What Rumi said, you know, about let the beauty of what you love be what you do. If you don't have that, then you're not going to necessarily have that feeling to go into work. I love, I love what I do. So I go in knowing that today is the day I'm going to, I'm going to actively uh, affect what I what I want to be doing. Look, obviously, all doctors don't choose public service. Once they've, you know, uh, finished the the, the the public service, the two years or however long they must do it, and then they decide, no, now it's time to make money. <laughs> Is that still out there? Doctors don't really make money. <laughs> well, At least, uh, well, I, I, I don't know. Relative, <laughs> I guess relative. I mean, somebody would uh, would differ with you, but yeah. the point is. So, so what you're saying is if a young person wants to become wealthy, being a doctor, then it's the wrong place to be. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying you, one chooses what, what they want out of life and they choose the path they take. If, if that is their purpose, um, then they will find it in medicine. There's a lot of money to be made in medicine. But uh, within surgery, 
what is wonderful is that it's such an evolving field and that's what's very interesting about ENT surgery uh, for example I've got uh, one of the um, one of my colleagues uh, Prof Libba Darlene Libba she's an amazing uh, surgeon and she works with an endoscope in the nose and in the last couple years so she's again, you, she, works in she the does way. endoscopic so yeah. using using um, a telescope to look into the nose and she does endoscopic sinus work but in the last uh, few years, uh, she's pioneered um, transorbital surgery. Now, what that means is you actually go along the wall of the of the oh. eye, mm. and this is remarkable stuff. So ENT. So she a, does surgery going through the eye. Yes, through the lateral side of the eye, the, mm. the outer part mm. of the eye, with an ophthalmologist. And so for me, ENT, ear, nose, and throat surgery, and airway and head and neck stuff, it provides the substrate even to push the boundaries but to incorporate all sorts of bioengineering in there so we're just going to go on a break quickly when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about you know what will encourage young people to get into becoming ENT and of course how can the community assist you to actually get uh, you know to, to, to get this on a, basically to get more resources to help more people sure the Leadership Hour. Okay, so we got Dr. Shazia Peer. Um, she is a pediatric ENT surgeon. We, um, we, in fact, we're just listening to you know the type of things we do. They doing as doctors and. We don't, we're not even aware of these things happening, you know, we just think, ah, it's normal basic surgery, and of course now we hear people are operating through, uh, you know, through the side of the eye, and Shazia, but I do believe you've also, what was your highlight in surgery, I mean, before we now get to the, to the funding part of, uh, you know, so your highlight. I think there's so many highlights, um, but the one that stands out, um, is uh, a procedure that we did last year and uh, why it stands out is because it's not just the surgery but it's the story behind the surgery it's a it's a love story of uh, two parents who um, advocated for their child their unborn child to have um, surgery at birth to save her life and so this child um, but wow, did they know something was wrong with Yeah, it was quite a remarkable story. So mom went for her routine ultrasound at 25 weeks at a retreat, actually. And the ultrasonographer picked up that there was something not right. And um, this was on a routine scan and they were fast-tracked to the fetal um, assessment unit at Khrutuski Hospital. And uh, what happens there is they do some more imaging of the mum with the baby. And they were told that the child has vocal cord stem bunda that are fused in the midline. And if she were to be born naturally, she would die 100% mortality because she wouldn't be able to make her first breath. Um, otherwise, everything else was was uh, looked okay, and so they were encouraged to terminate because this was something that uh, was very, very rare. But they felt that it was not safe for the mum and and would probably not be compatible with life, most certainly during delivery. And so the parents really um, introspected and and looked looked for help because mum felt that this was something uh, she didn't want to just. Uh, 
give up on and uh, she felt a connection with her child and so they really researched went on the internet and and found out about a procedure called exit an exit exit and uh, so they contacted the unit and said they must there's someone here who can do it you need to contact them and um, I was very lucky in my training in Canada I, I was able to be involved in many of these cases and so uh, for me this was something I could offer them but there was a lot of resistance from many people both from the medical side and the non-medical side because this was considered experimental even though it was 25 years in the so making. Can you imagine how the lawyers went? <laughs> oh, I won't even mention. <laughs> Gosh, we needed a separate room for the lawyers. <laughs> but uh, what was really lovely was uh, the fact that these parents uh, fought for their child and um, even to some degree as a specialist, as a surgeon, we Don't also felt that. But go to the part. What did you have to do? So what I had to do was um, we, uh, as a team, so we had a team of specialists, uh, pediatric surgeons, uh, anesthetists, uh, obstetricians, and uh, mom had a C-section, a cesarean section, and the baby was delivered but still attached to the placenta. Mm -hmm. And um, that can only happen for a few minutes before you need to clamp the cord and and so, how long did you have? so in essence we had about 10 minutes but we had about two minutes to create an alternative airway so the stem bundle are fused in the midline the vocal cords are fused so there's no way to breathe your first breath so we uh, we bypass that and we create a little hole a chaiki in the neck that's the tracheostomy but we do it mm. in basically two minutes and so okay. i had a wonderful assistant who's now my colleague jessica mcguire and we together basically did this and we had two minutes Okay. And, it was, it and was the wonderful. child survived? The child survived and she's now one year old. Wow. Yeah, and she's, she's doing very well. She's, um, she's had a few adversities with time um, and uh, uh, she's growing well. And we'll in, when she turns three years old, in, inshallah, we'll repair now, the voice box. Okay, now, now let's talk about the bravery here. Because if things had to go wrong here, mm. let's say the child died, then of course... The, the activists would have come out, you know, the, 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 the ethics people would have come out, the, because a child in, at that stage legally is called a nascaturus. Mm. So people would have been acting for this nascaturus. And um, were you not nervous at any point that things are going to go wrong and you're going to be sued? And, you know, if it's, an, if it's something that pe it has never been done before, there's always going to be people who would, um, would want to see so you fail really mm. um, but I was I, I felt very strong in my conviction that this is something I can do this is something that I'm able to do and this is something that uh, would uh, save the child and uh, you know that morning you know I, I was ve very strong in my heart I had my conviction and uh, my iman and I was I was content that this was the right thing to do um, mm. all through the time. And I had the support of my department. I had the support of my professor, uh, my professors, but all of them, um, and even of the larger community. I think everybody realized that this was something we could do. And the stakes were high, absolutely. Um, but I was very clear that if something were to go wrong at the time, I would not, I would not push. Mm. We were lucky. Shazia, as I said earlier, and you've got a lot of fans right now. I mean, this woman just sent a message now to say, mashallah, and absolute inspiration, stay blessed. So, of course, this type of stories is good. Now, I want to check with you. You mentioned limited resources. How is it possible then for community, ordinary people, you know, mm. to to get involved, you know, to... to um, 
to support the type of work that Red Cross does, the doctors like yourself, your team. I mean, what in your opinion would be the best way to get involved? I think one of the simplest ways is to see what we do. You can always come and see the unit and see how we're able to help children with airway problems and uh, who have tracheostomies. And then the other thing to do is to, to help us with funding. We at uh, the specific department, the ENT department, we're able to do more um, and improve the quality of our service delivery with funds and uh, the Red Cross Children's Hospital Fund uh, helps us quite a lot um, but with uh, the community funding we're able to do so much more so people would direct their funds at our our department you know the ENT department specifically and uh, this would definitely help us go a lot further we're able to do more get better equipment and um, help more children the, the children in need. I think what's also good is that even though I'm an airway specialist, we have a lot more within the scope of ENT. And one of the um, one of the more needy uh, parts of what we provide um, is the deaf community, the children who are um, uh, hearing impaired. And that is that is actually one of the um, most challenging things because many people in the community don't know that their children can't hear until it's too late. It's not something that is overt, it's not obvious. And so the signs may not be picked up. A lot of um, parents who have kids who are born who don't have hearing screening, for example. Uh, very, very um, few centers provide hearing screening at birth. So I would definitely encourage people to screen their children, screen all their children, go you know, to the hospital centers and at least test, test mm -hmm. your children. You know, Shaza, we've now come to the end of our program, unfortunately. Um, we, I would have loved to have heard a little bit more, especially about, I mean, you mentioned some authors like Rumi and uh, the other author that wrote Blink. But, oh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yes. So hopefully that, uh, you know, that one day we can have you back on here and you can tell us a little bit of what inspires you as a leader and as a pioneer to, you know, to read these things because young people end up not reading. They think if they read a WhatsApp or they write a WhatsApp message that that's sufficient. So it's heartening to see people like you who do these things actually also have a, a habit of reading. And I mean, that's why you can quote authors and I mean, that's beautiful. So from my side, Shazia, thank you very much from the community side. We really, really appreciate you coming out here as a leader in your field. To, to give us a little bit of insight into what you do. So we wish you well. Shukran very much. And uh, I hope that Thank we'll you. see you one of these days again. So. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs>